You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Lucy Kellison. And I'm Benedict Jones. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, April 18th, 2023. Later in the program, the Monroe County Community Justice Response Committee announced that local officials will tour county-owned property south of Catalan as a potential site for the new jail. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Lil Bub's Lil Show, a co-production between WFHB and Lil Bub's Lil Fund. But first, your local headlines. During public comment at the Community Justice Response Committee on April 17th, concerned resident Mark Haggerty complained that proposed locations for the new jail and the poor conditions of the new jail. I'm here because I, I'm not sure who everybody in this group is, but I know that's the group that is deciding on what the new jail is going to be and where to put it. And it seems to me that the obvious place is the old hospital. And it, and, uh, it seems to be remarkable, and I've been told that there's no representative from the city on this board, and that uh, uh, that's remarkable too, because 80% of the people in the Bloomington jail are Bloomington citizens. Um, the fact that that's not even been thought of or discussed as the, as the obvious site is a, a, re- a remarkable thing. Another remarkable thing is no one is brought up the number of deaths in custody during the last administration. It's like, uh, does anyone know that we've had multiple deaths in custody in our jail? And if you don't know, isn't that remarkable? Imagine if one of these kids that died in the jail had been an IU student rather than one of these cutters. We would have a, a, a major news event within a half an hour across the nation. But since these kids are poor kids, and apparently four suicides, according to our legal system, but how would I know? How would you know? You're just learning about them. I think that's a remarkable thing. And the fact that they all came after our community recovery program was canceled, I think is a remarkable coincidence. So uh, I was in charge of the recovery program on the board of directors for 15 years. And um, and we worked in the jail successfully during that time. And we had a recovery program that would be the model for any recovery program in the country, and especially for Bloomington, because it evolved, evolved in Bloomington and concerned and, and involved concerned, concerned people that were part of our community that made a bridge to the people in the jail that caused it to be a therapeutic place at that time. All these suicides have occurred since that program was canceled. So I'm asking you guys to consider that. Look up, look it up, find out about these deaths in our jail. 
One was a black boy who had just turned 18 who was denied his heart medication and died of a heart attack in our recovery block. The fact that this isn't national news makes me wonder why I'm living in Bloomington. Public Engagement Director for the City of Bloomington, Kaisa Goodman, announced that a handful of local officials will tour the county-owned Thompson property south of Catalan as a potential site for the new jail. Goodman criticized the lack of city involvement in the committee. During public comment two weeks ago, I shared that several city staff had just met with Council Attorney Jeff Cockrell about potential jail locations, specifically the Thompson property just south of Catalan. It took quite a few emails, but I'm glad to say we have scheduled a tour for later this week. In attendance will be myself, City Corporation Council Beth Kate, City Planning Director Scott Robinson, County Attorney Jeff Cockrell, Lieutenant Colonel Kyle Gibbons, who serves as the jail commander, County Councilor Kate Wiltz, and potentially another county council member as well. I'm sharing this once again in a public meeting because I want to be transparent about progress and collaboration that is happening between our city and county governments. I'm also going to be transparent about the city's frustration with the very slow pace of any progress. It shouldn't take weeks or months to schedule a meeting, any meeting, but particularly one associated with such a critical and time-sensitive issue. This relates to our concerns about how ineffective and inefficient it is for the city's only participation in this committee to come from biweekly public comment rather than regular dialogue. It also pushes the conversations that do happen into non-public meetings. As an observer of the CJRC, it feels like a majority of each meeting is spent discussing the structure and operations of the committee itself rather than the issue at hand, justice reform and how to help people. While some logistical discussion at a committee meeting is to be expected, I think the high ratio of process to content that we've seen over a sustained period of time speaks to deep-seated concerns of many committee members and community members. At the risk of contributing to that problem with these remarks, I ask the CJRC members and particularly the commissioners who determine the makeup and structure of the committee to reassess how this group and our community as a whole can accelerate substantive progress on the issues of justice reform and public health investments. City Council Member Isabel Piedmont-Smith said she wants to see the committee prioritize treatment rather than incarceration. Smith called out the lack of transparency in the CJRC and said that she'd like to see more city involvement. I know we are all very concerned about community justice and uh, the mental health and addiction crisis that we're facing in our community. Um, so I speak with you to you as I, I recognize that you're all dedicated to finding solutions. Um, I uh, want to echo some of the comments made by Seth and by Kaisa in regard to um, the priority of mental health care and um, substance use disorder care. Uh, and just refer back to the guiding principles of this committee, um, where number one is prioritize treatment over incarceration when appropriate. Um, I don't know what when appropriate means, but treatment over incarceration, I feel like there's been very little, if any, action on treatment. Um, and it's, it's definitely very closely related to people ending up in the criminal justice system. So I would urge you to, uh, to work hard on the treatment aspect. Um, also in your uh, guiding principles, the very first sentence uh, says we will work collaboratively and transparently. And I feel like um, that has not occurred. Um, I, uh, as a city council member, I continue to be dismayed that nobody from the city is um, being officially consulted in any kind of public meeting. Um, 
and uh, the way that um, DLZ was selected and some of the other, uh, the, the statement, the principles, or the, I'm sorry, the, the vision that the commissioners presented a few weeks ago, um, there was no transparent process behind those things that I can discern. And so that is also disturbing to me. Um, so I, uh, I urge uh, the commissioners to um, make good on the promises of your guiding principles. Thank you. The committee then heard a presentation from architectural firm DLZ regarding the design for a new potential jail. To listen to the full presentation discussion, visit catstv.net. The next CJRC meeting will happen on May 1st. On April 12th at the Bloomington City Council meeting, Councilmember Isabel Piedmont-Smith spoke about democracy. I just want to shout out to um, two of my uh, newest heroes. Um, as you probably heard uh, on April 6th, just two days after the 55th anniversary of the murder of Martin Luther King Jr. in Memphis, um, the Republican-controlled state legislature of the state of Tennessee um, expelled two, two of its members, two young black activist members. Um, Justin Jones, uh, who represented uh, a district in Nashville, uh, and Justin J. Pearson from Memphis. Um, these uh, young men and, and the courage that they've shown and the leadership they've shown, they're very new to um, the State House in Tennessee, um, I, I find admirable. And I am very uh, disturbed by this racist action of the uh, Tennessee legislature. I can imagine such a thing could happen in Indiana. And um, want to say to our representatives, we've got your back, or at least I, I do. I would be out there with you. Because the issue that they were protesting in the well of the State House was gun control. Yet another mass shooting, uh, this time in Nashville, prompted their demonstration um, last week. Um, Luckily, uh, more grassroots democracy prevailed, or lower-level democracy at least. The Nashville Metropolitan Council unanimously reinstated Justin Jones on Monday. The Shelby County Commission unanimously reinstated <laughs> Justin J. Pearson uh, today. And um, I just want to quote from uh, Representative Pearson uh, today. He said, Nashville thought that they could silence democracy, but they didn't know the Shelby County Commission. So the message for all the people in Nashville who decided to expel us, you can't expel hope. You can't expel love. You can't expel our voice. And you sure can't expel our fight. We look forward to continuing to fight, continuing to advocate until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Let's get back to work. And I can't do uh, his eloquence justice. Um, he's... Uh, very reminiscent of Martin Luther King in, in the way he talks. He, he's, um, uh, he has studied uh, theology and is very um, uh, good at using uh, imagery to make his point. And so the, the point here is that we need to keep speaking up about um, the, the murder of our children and our community members because... Um, Everybody can access a gun. There are too many guns out there. There are too few checks on who can get guns. Um, far too often, uh, underage people can access guns. People with mental health issues can access guns. 
Um, and it's, it's a problem that we need to keep speaking out about, um, even if uh, people who are in the pocket of the NRA are in our state legislature, which actually we saw today here in Indiana. Um, so that is my report. Thank you. Next, Mayor John Hamilton shared information on the cost of annexation litigation. First on annexation cost, total direct cost to date uh, and overall in the, in the um, annexation process is $1.33 million. $1.33 million. We estimate that may rise to over $1.5 million with litigation uh, expected. It's really important to note that about half of that total of 1.5, if that's where we end up, results directly from the Indiana General Assembly illegally stopping annexation in 2017 and 2019 uh, actions. In other words, half of that cost has been caused directly by the General Assembly's unlawful actions. Most of the annexation costs reflect an extremely detailed fiscal plans that are done and renewed uh, by experts uh, for the public review, far beyond legal requirements, but done with a parcel-by-parcel fiscal impact and very detailed plans that let the administration, city council, and the public thoroughly vet the proposed annexation. Uh, and, and last point on cost, I just want to note that any halting and restarting or resetting of the current annexation process will not save money, it will cost money. Any renewal or restarting or resetting will require new or updated fiscal plans, which are the largest expense of annexation, substantially adding to any cost of future annexation. Again, we'll share the details of that with, with your uh, council uh, tomorrow morning. Just very briefly, also discussions of the size of annexation. I just, you know much of this, but the proposed annexation is sized because nearly 20 years have now passed since there's been any annexation in the city. 20 years. Uh, so our boundaries no longer correspond to the extent of our community. Council member Steve Volan asked Hamilton if city staff can put together a report on the TIF or tax increment financing that the Bloomington Redevelopment Commission uses to invest in projects like Switchyard Park and the mill. Hamilton responded. In the course of trying to establish, uh, uh, you know, why, whether or not the TIF would be a better source of revenue for that, um, I found that it was uh, very difficult to find anywhere on the city site um, how much money was in the TIF, but more specifically uh, what it was spent on. And so one thing that I'd like to know is, can you and your staff prepare? Uh, I mean, the TIF has been a big deal uh, with a lot of money going through it for a lot of years. And it's hard to say, well, what have we really spent it on? How can we break it down? What big pro? Because it mostly it's, it's large dollars and few uh, disbursements to big projects. Right. So can you talk about those projects at all? And if not, uh, can we have that be a regular part of the budget from now on? Because... Uh, uh, it, the RDC is not exactly a body that regularly reports to us, and uh, it's responsible for a lot of money. Yeah, I think those are really well taken. Um, of course, the RDC does produce an annual report that gives its balances at the end of the year. It's coming out shortly for 2022, uh, which will show about $26 million, As I think I mentioned, the 2021 report shows about $22 million in balance. Um, but as you indicate, and, and of course, every project the RDC does, every investment they make is 
is, is itemized in a meeting and it's in the minutes, but as you indicate, it is difficult if one to were to say, it. what has yeah. the RDC invested in over the last 10 years, or five or 15, that's not a, a list that we have. Hamilton said it would take a few weeks to have the staff compile a list of investments they have done over the years. Next, Innovation Director Dev DeKid gave a report on the Sidewalk Innovation Project. Residents said that sidewalks are important to them, and through our many strategic plans, we've told them that it's a priority for us. The innovation method that we used is called human-centered design, and as the name suggests, it centers the people who would be impacted by a change and involves them in the solution making for the process. We used an innovation method because the solution to the problem was not known. Had we known the solution, it would have been a project management exercise. So not every problem is suited to an innovation framework, but this one was. The starting point was to define the problem, to solve, and then deeply understand the context. To understand the context, we conducted 14 resident interviews and observed 10 residents, not in a creepy way, on their journey by sidewalk. We reviewed all of the city's strategic planning and meeting documents that pertain to sidewalks, and we analyzed the data from six years of our U reports. The research pointed to a number of different directions deserving of focus, but ultimately, the voice of the residents was clear. They just want to be able to get where they're going by sidewalk without having to step into traffic. So what's getting in the way? Sidewalks in poor condition, most of which use historic pavers. Additionally, residents interviewed were unclear about who's responsible for maintaining the pavement service surface. Encroachment by trees, hedges, low-hanging branches. Here again, some residents weren't clear that even trimming hedges or clearing away the branches was their responsibility. The city maintains some of these things for pathways and uh, multi-use trails, which look like sidewalks to residents. So there's some confusion there. Rough transitions between sidewalks and driveways and alley entrances and different things blocking the sidewalk like trash and recycling bins and scooters. And finally, we heard of gaps in the sidewalk network, such as sidewalks ending abruptly without signage to motorists that pedestrians are getting ready to enter the roadway. Kidd explained what the impact of unmaintained sidewalks is and shared the ideas the community came up with to solve the problem. So what's the impact of these barriers in human terms? During interviews with residents, we heard stories like the one of a young woman in a wheelchair who toppled over because of a rough transition, like the one you see in the picture here. She lay on the sidewalk until someone could help her. We heard things like, I just don't go down Washington Street on trash day. And we heard many, many stories of people having to step into traffic and worry about being seen by cars for all of the reasons in the picture here. So what do we do about it? We used four different methods to generate solutions, and as much as possible, we tried to go to where the residents were. We did this in collaboration with community members, which resulted in 107 unique ideas. 
The innovation team used our framework to whittle that group down to a much smaller manageable set of 11 ideas, and then we held two virtual meetings where participants rated those ideas based on the idea's ability to impact the goal of all sidewalks always navigable for everyone and their degree of confidence that the idea could actually be practically implemented. These are the seven ideas with the highest rankings. It's a little bit difficult to uh, read the titles here, but don't worry about that because I'm getting ready to go into the details on each one of these. The horizontal x-axis represents the combined degree of support for these options. The highest rated item is quarterly communications to residents that would inform and remind them of their seasonal responsibilities and encourage them to take action. I mentioned earlier that we heard from many folks that they're confused about who is supposed to do what. One thing we can do pretty easily is to send seasonal updates using our various media channels. This idea had broad support from residents and our internal departments like planning, engineering, utilities, and hand, who also have information that they want to send seasonally in a bundle. There's also the possibility of gamifying the responsibility with challenges that invite residents to clean and decorate their sidewalk according to a theme and send us pictures to post to our social media. We think this idea is a just do it. The second highest rated item is to explore more funding sources for sidewalks. Kid also shared that they are going to keep researching alternatives to historical sidewalks and in the meantime make sure that the ones that are in disrepair are addressed. They also talked about putting visual markers on the ground where trash cans should go that would ensure residents do not put their trash cans on the sidewalk. Kidd also shared that they will start to use alternative materials, like recycled plastics, instead of cement for sidewalks. Some recent research revealed a few companies that are trialing alternative materials, like recycled hard plastics and recycled rubber, that perform as good or better than concrete in climates like ours for a lower cost over the lifetime of the material. I'm excited to announce that we'll begin the process of exploring the possibility of using alternative materials starting next month. In May, an Indiana-based vendor will meet with representatives from multiple departments to answer their questions about the material and determine if our terrain is suitable to their product. If so, we'll identify a pilot area. An interesting aspect of this particular vendor's product is that it's made from recycled plastics that could be sourced from our own community. So we could be providing the source material for our own sidewalks. We also continue to look for other materials. There's a lot of buzz in the innovation world about cementless concrete that could um, aid in carbon capture, as one example. Council member Dave Rollo asked Kidd about the sample size used to determine the support of the ideas. Kidd responded that the sample size was 20. Rollo suggested that a larger survey be taken to get a better representation on the public's perspective of the ideas. The next Bloomington City Council meeting will be held on April 19th. Welcome to Lil Bub's Lil Show, a weekly co-production from WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. 
We highlight adoptable animals with special needs in South Central Indiana and spotlight topics to promote human animal welfare. First, here is today's featured animal. Bryn is a super loving American Staffordshire Terrier mix, just under five years old. She has been enjoying the play yard pool at the City of Bloomington Animal Shelter and splashes around after lounging in the sun. Bryn enjoys both her solo time and playing with pals outside. She has multiple skin issues and shelter staff can advise on how to help her in the future in a new home. The appearance of her skin has improved with time. She loves to snuggle but also has an independent personality where she is content to do her own thing. To learn more about Bryn, please reach out to the City of Bloomington Animal Shelter. If you're interested in adopting today's featured pet, you can learn more at our websites, goodjobbub.org and wfhb.org. You're listening to Lil Bub's Lil Show, a co-production of WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. We now turn to this week's featured topic. According to the USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, there are a number of possible skin disorders in dogs. Allergies can be in response to food or the environment. Itching due to allergies can be localized or all over the body. Hot spots form when skin is irritated, such as from allergies, flea bites, an infection, or matted hair. Then the dog licks or scratches at the spot. Flea bites can cause itching, scabs, and hair loss. At first, irritation from flea bites can often be seen at the base of a dog's tail. Pyoderma is a bacterial infection that can result in red, irritated skin with pustules and may or may not include hair loss. Ringworm is a fungal infection that can affect the skin, hair, and or nails. Ringworm is highly contagious and can transmit between dogs or even to humans. Mange is caused by mites, and it may result in redness, itching, and hair loss. There are two types of mange, demodectic and sarcoptic. Demodectic mange is not contagious and is usually found in young dogs with compromised immune systems, malnourishment, or severe stress. Sarcoptic mange is caused by the scabies mite and is highly contagious between dogs. People can also be infected by this type of mange. If you notice any signs of a skin disorder, it is recommended to consult with a veterinarian for proper diagnosis and treatment. Thank you for tuning in to Lil Bub's Lil Show on WFHB produced in partnership with Lil Bub's Big Fund. For more info on today's featured animal and topic, find us online at goodjobbub.org and wfhb.org. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar. 
a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com.